Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, September 22nd, 2023. It was on this day in 1952 that Rocky Marciano knocked out Jersey Joe Walcott in the 13th round, winning the World Heavyweight Championship on his first try. In a rematch, he knocked out Walcott in the first round. It was also on this day in 1776 that American patriot Nathan Hale was hanged for spying. He was reported to have said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. And it was on this day in 1862 that Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation declaring all slaves free in the states that were under rebellion against the United States. So there were some slave states that did not affect because they did not secede with the Confederacy, but in all the uh, states that were under rebellion, slaves were then free and it pretty much up the ante of the Civil War. It was caused, of course, because of slavery and the issue of slavery in the United States, but the catalyst that started it was the secession of most of the slave states and Lincoln's resolve to bring them back into the Union. And it was on this day as a war measure that Lincoln declared the Emancipation Proclamation, which would go into effect on January 1st, 1863. It would take the 13th Amendment to the Constitution to codify it into law and in the Constitution, the only place in the entire Constitution is slave, in which slavery is mentioned by name, even though there are references, backhanded references and hints to it throughout. And so in light of that, uh, I was planning on talking about something else, but that can happen at another occasion. I thought I'd talk about the issue uh, of the history of the United States, of Christianity, and the whole issue of slavery that seems to be brought up still by people especially in this country, who like to remind us that this country did at one time have slavery, but seem to forget that over 155 years ago, it was formally abolished by the victory in the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, and that the vast majority of our nation's history after the Constitution has been without slavery. But in many ways, it's spoken of as a racial issue, and I'm not going to be racial in this particular a talk, but the whole question of slavery is something that we see all throughout history. Uh, at one time, you know, early humanity were hunter-gatherers, but eventually they settled down and uh, grew into uh, agricultural societies. And once those societies became tied to the land in which they were now farming, planting, and harvesting, they had workers, and slavery began to be flourished, and it existed in almost every ancient civilization. It's not something that was invented by one particular race or one particular region in the world. It existed everywhere in the Shang Dynasty in China from at least the second millennium BC, with the largest market in India. The Code of Hammurabi prescribed death to those who helped slaves escape. Pharaonic Egypt, ancient Egypt, we see slavery. In ancient Greece, we saw slavery as early as 1600 to 1100 BC. Slavery was vital to the economy of the Roman Empire and especially by the late Republican era. And of course, all throughout the world, in the New World, we saw slavery in the Aztec Empire in Mexico, the Incan Empire in the Andes. We saw it in Brazil. We saw it among the Creek Indians in Georgia, the Comanche Indians in Texas. We saw slavery in every major society. 
And it wasn't just one race against another. Europeans enslaved Europeans, Africans enslaved Africans, Asians enslaved Asians. It was a part of society. And even in the Old Testament, in the Bible, now we get into the part of our Judeo-Christian faith and how it addresses it. In the Old Testament, slavery is codified in the Law of Moses, 21st chapter of Exodus. It forbids the kidnapping for the purpose of slavery. So here we have something that now is against slavery that we see in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, Exodus 21, verse 16, it forbids kidnapping for the purpose of slavery, and that, of course, is one of the principal ways in which slavery flourished. Conquerors would make slaves of the conquered. Taking of people against their will to make them slaves is forbidden in the book of Exodus. It also, while still allowing for slavery in Jewish society, grants slaves a day of rest. Slaves are included in the commandment, keep holy the Sabbath. No one is to work but even slaves and even beasts of burden, so you can say God was the first animal rights activist, had to take a day of rest. So it elevates slaves one day a week to equal status with their masters in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. During a jubilee year, the law of Moses grants liberation to slaves, Exodus 21, verse 2. And, and, however, I, I put a however there, a person can choose to remain a slave. They're to be freed after a certain number of years, but then the slave may be dedicated to the master and may choose to remain a slave. And there are legal precepts that must be followed if a slave chooses to remain in that status. So we see in the Bible, slavery is there, slavery is allowed, but God's law moves towards emancipation and as found in the Jewish law. So once we start inserting Judaism into this and the law of God, we start seeing a movement toward emancipation within Hebrew society. In the New Testament, it's spoken of as a matter of fact in Jewish society. Slaves are there. Even Matthew, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, no slave can serve two masters. He doesn't say if it's right or wrong, it's just, it's spoken of. It's a part of society. And it's also spoken of in terms of our previous servitude to sin, St. Paul, in many locations, refers to slavery to sin. And obviously, that's not a positive thing. So we see the sentiment in the New Testament is negative if we refer to it as slavery to sin. But it's also spoken of as a state of being in service to God. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, grant to your slaves to speak your word with all boldness. In Acts 16, 17, these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. And Paul refers to himself in the letter to the Romans. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So it's spoken of in terms of our service to God and in terms of our present service to one another. St. Paul again says, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. Further, as a people of salvation, the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, verse 16, as slaves of God, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Why? Because we're slaves of God. We do need to please that master. And slavery is spoke of in terms of equality of all people before God when St. Paul says, 
in the book of uh, the letter to the Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So even in the Bible, many people would say that Christianity somehow uh, condones slavery or fosters it because it's in the Bible. But when you look at how it's presented in the Bible, we do see a movement toward a more negative attitude towards slavery. But in all honesty, the New Testament does not encourage emancipation outright. It hints at certain sentiments against slave training, trading because it says uh, in the letter to Timothy, slave traders, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Slave trading is contrary to sound teaching. Kidnapping for the purpose of slave trading is contrary to sound teaching. But in some places, St. Paul does say in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 21, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. In Colossians 3, verse 22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. And St. Paul says to Timothy in the first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 1, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. And in many ways, that's aimed toward converting the master. But again, we see there, yes, in the New Testament, it does not encourage emancipation outright, but is spoken of very much as a matter of fact, just a, a matter of society. It doesn't take a stand biblically against slavery, but we still see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament references to slavery made in terms of service to God, our service to one another, a kind of, uh, a kind of metaphor for being humble before God and hu in humble service to one another. But especially in the law of Moses, you definitely see a movement toward emancipation. But also, in the New Testament, here is perhaps the real clincher when it comes to the movement of Christianity away from slavery. Again, not emancipation outright, but you see a hint toward setting free a slave for a very important reason. And this is found in the letter of St. Paul to Philemon. And it has to do with the treatment of a fellow Christian. Now, the letter of Paul to Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letters and one of the shortest books of the Bible, and certainly one of the shortest in the New Testament. And St. Paul is responding to a situation in which a slave named Onesimus, who belonged to Philemon, had escaped and escaped to St. Paul and converted to Christianity. And Paul is returning the slave to the slave master. Now, many people have taken issue with that particular book because it's saying, see, Paul is pro-slavery. Christianity is pro-slavery because look at what it says about obeying their masters, and don't be concerned about being a slave, and here he's actually returning a slave to his master. And many people have that bone of contention with the book of the letter of Paul to Philemon. But Paul puts a different spin on it. And if we are to understand, according to the letter, that Paul and Philemon are good friends, and perhaps that's how Onesimus knew St. Paul and knew to run to Paul, Paul writes, in verses 13 and 14 in the letter to Philemon, I wanted to keep Onesimus with me so that he might be of service, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary 
and not something forced. You want to talk about a statement in terms of social and political issues of uh, certain people paying a fair share, charity could be voluntary and not something forced. But that's a different issue for a different podcast. But then Paul goes on. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. A partner in faith, a Christian to another Christian, now returning a converted slave to Christianity, basically saying he's no longer your slave, he's a beloved brother. And what is that hinting at? Well, it certainly hints at the sentiment, Christians do not enslave other Christians. And we certainly see a movement toward uh, the emancipation, or at least a strong hint of the emancipation, in the Bible, in that very short book. Yes, Paul is returning a slave. Does that mean he's pro-slave? Well, if we want to read this in a tongue-in-cheek fashion, hint, 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 Philemon, he's no longer a slave, he's better. He's your brother in faith. And how do we treat our brothers? Christians do not enslave other Christians. And that is perhaps what led to the trend as more and more of Europe became Christian, you saw fewer and fewer instances of slavery. Yeah, throughout medieval Europe and Christian Europe, you may have seen pockets of slavery, but it was not an institution. And by the time we get to the reign of Charlemagne, uh, you did not see slavery. Charlemagne was against slavery. But there was still slavery in the world at that time. There was a Mediterranean, a Mediterranean slave trade, especially from the Barbary coast of Northern Africa after the Muslim conquests. We saw the raids in European coastal towns that fed the Mediterranean slave trade, and these were, in fact, European slaves. And these were based in North Africa, Algeria, Tripolitania, Tunisia. In the year 1650, there were up to 35,000 Christian European slaves in Algiers. And the Barbary pirates in, Medi in the Mediterranean flourished until the early 19th century. When we sing the Song of the Marines from the halls of Montezuma, of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, the shores of Tripoli was when President Thomas Jefferson sent the U.S. Marines to Tripoli to curb the actions of the Barbary slave trade, the Barbary menace in the Mediterranean. And these European slaves were acquired from coastal raids. Trade in European slaves actually peaked in the 10th century. And if we remember the, at least the story of the children's crusade during the time of the crusades, those children who made it to the coast, who made it to the, to the harbors, who got on the ships to presumably go to the promised land to be these junior crusaders, the story goes that some were killed in shipwrecks, but the rest were taken to northern Africa where they were sold into slavery. Not in Europe, but in northern Africa. Muslim territory. And, of course, this continued until the 18th and 19th centuries and formally ceased in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So even after 
America, the United States freed slaves and emancipated slaves, there was still some form of a slave trade, even into the early 20th centuries, centered around Northern Africa. Well, of course, yes, there was a decline of slavery in, the, uh, in Europe, but of course it was on the rise again. We can't deny that during the colonial period. But what happened leading up to the colonial period of European history? New World Settlement saw a rise in the slave trade, and in this particular case, in America, the African slavery, the African slave trade. A blight on the history of the New World, yes, but when did this happen? All this happened post-Protestant Reformation, post the rise of nationalism, and a shift in the cultural mindset called the Enlightenment. Now, did these things lead to the rise in colonial slavery, at least in the Americas? I don't know, but at least the coincidence must be noted. With the rise of Protestantism, in which we no longer listened to the Catholic Church, with the rise of nationalism, in which we were no longer considered a part of Christendom, but a part of the individual nations that we identified with, and when we are more scientific with the Enlightenment, we saw a rise in slavery in the, the uh, era of colonialism. But we also saw indentured servitude grow with colonization, and even in, as late as 1606, coal miners in Scotland were bound to their masters. And this was formally banned in 1799. So you had in Great Britain, England, Scotland, European masters had European slaves. The coal miners in Scotland were bound to their masters. They had the opportunity to um, emancipate themselves when they were of a certain age, but then at that particular time, they had to make the choice and they would remain bound to their masters for the rest of their lives. So it wasn't just as cut and dry of one race enslaving another, but you still saw it continue, but it was in Western Christian Europe that the morality of slavery began to be questioned. Before that, it was just a fact of life, a fact of society, a part of civilization. And yes, it was on the decline in, in Christian Europe and then on the rise with the period of colonialism, post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment. But even when it was on the rise, again in Europe, as part of the colonial um, movements, it was still controversial. Controversial meaning, of course, that while some people were in favor of it, a great many were also against it. It was not something that it came on the rise with impunity in Europe. Throughout the rest of the world, it was not morally questioned. It was in Europe, Christian Europe, that we see slavery being questioned morally. And it didn't happen overnight, but it was a phenomenon that occurred that did not occur in other parts of the world. And even slavery in the United States was controversial. When people say this nation was founded on slavery, it was not as simple as, yes, let's have slavery and found our nation on it. There were those who were against it. It was controversial and led to compromise, various compromises in our nation's founding. Because what do people say about slavery in the U.S.? It's the original sin of the United States. But actually, no, it's not the original sin of the United States. It's the original sin of human civilization. The original sin of human civilization. And by the time the United States was founded, 
Civilization, especially European civilization, was at a crossroads regarding the practice and morality of slavery. So slavery may still have existed, but the issues regarding the morality of slavery was reaching ahead at that particular time. By the late 18th century, for the first time in history, so civilization was coming to a head with regard to the morality of slavery. It was really under question, and this was unique to the West, to Western civilization. The first instance in which we see a great deal of society being against slavery. And many people will say, slavery is the original sin of the United States. I would contradict that. Liberty is the original principle of the United States. And because liberty is the original principle of the United States, the United States was not established on slavery, but with slavery. There is a difference. And even though it was established with slavery, much of our founding was on liberty. And because it was on liberty, you see the founding moving, or at least giving the potential, the kindling, that would eventually spark the movement to abolish slavery in this country. Because liberty is the founding principle of the United States, freedom was therefore the primary value, and that would lead to the abolition of slavery. And of course, we see that in um, the Declaration of Independence that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we even see some founding fathers, because the nation was founded on liberty, freeing their own slaves. Robert Pleasance, a Virginia Quaker, emancipated 80 slaves and was urged to do so. John Lawrence proposed among 3,000 South uh, Carolinian slaves in return for emancipation. He proposed arming 3,000 South Carolinian slaves in return for emancipation. And Lafayette himself said, emancipation is a logical outcome to the founding of the United States. But we see instances in our founding. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed with rights that include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So liberty and equality are the principles under which the nation was founded, not slavery. If slavery was what this nation was founded on, we probably would still have slavery. But the fact that we were founded on liberty shows that at least in this country, while in Western civilization, the morality of slavery was really reaching ahead, the controversy over the morality of slavery was really reaching ahead and coming to a crossroads, we see in this country, while it still had slavery, was founded on liberty and freedom and the right to liberty, as well as life and the pursuit of happiness, and you even saw some of the founding generation, because of that, freeing their slaves. And even slave owners who didn't free their slaves, like George Washington, they were his wife's slaves, by the way, he didn't have the legal authority to free them, and Thomas Jefferson, who benefited from slavery, but some of his actions as president diminished the value of his own farm, such as the Louisiana Purchase, opened up a lot of farmland uh, to be cultivated, which diminished the value of his own, uh, his own farming products, um, both he and, and Washington, in some of their writings, were saying, yeah, it kind of is a little awkward. 
continuing to have slavery in a nation that's founded on liberty. But even before the Constitution was developed, after the Revolutionary War, the Northwest Ordinance enacted by Congress in July 13, 1787, and this was under the Articles of Confederation, was the first law to create a structure by which new territories could follow a three-step legal path to become a state, but it was also the first substantial action by Congress to deal with the issue of slavery and enslavement. And in the Northwest Ordinance, this is before the Constitution, the Northwest Ordinance in 1787 declared in Article 6, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territories otherwise than in the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, provided always that any person escaping into the same from whom labor or service is lawfully claimed in any one of the original states, such fugitive may be lawfully reclaimed and conveyed to the person claiming his or her labor or service as aforesaid. So there's a fugitive slave clause there. Escaped slaves from territories that allow it will be returned, but in these newly established territories of the Northwest Ordinance, which includes Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and parts of, uh, parts of Minnesota, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude otherwise than in the punishment of crimes where the party shall have been duly convicted. We will hear that echoed again in the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. But then, of course, in the Constitution, we have what is called the Fugitive Slave Clause. Now, yes, does the Constitution allow for something like that? It does, but this is what we call compromise. The main principle of the establishment of the United States was getting this country established and grounded. And the slave issue was something that could have destroyed that between the North and the South, the agreements that they made. So they had to compromise. It says, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping to another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Again, it's called the Fugitive Slave Clause. Is this the Constitution declaring that in favor of slavery? No, but it's the compromise. What was the concession in the compromise from the slave side? We have, of course, the reference to the slave trade, not by word, but by implication. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. So in other words, they're kicking the issue down one generation. No law shall be made regarding the slave trade until 1808, 1808. And what is it saying? It shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to 1808. It's a limit of Congress. The states could prohibit it, but the federal Congress shall not touch it until 1808. So it was giving the states perhaps a little bit of incentive to do it on their own. But in, Jan in, in 1807, the year before 1808, Congress passed a law abolishing the slave trade. Once the Constitution allowed them to do so, Congress wasted no time. Now granted, 1807 is a year before 1808, but remember, laws passed take effect January 1st of the following year. The Emancipation Proclamation, declared in 1862, took effect in January 1st, 1863. Congress had a bill passed and ready to take effect 
once the Constitution allowed them to do so, and the slave trade was abolished in a bill passed by Congress in 1807, and it took effect January 1st, 1808. So again, yes, there was the slave trade allowed for its existence in the Constitution and kicked down to 1808, but once 1808 came around, this country wasted no time in abolishing the slave trade, specifically the slave trade as it's mentioned in the Constitution or as it's referred to in the Constitution. So you can't say that this country was oriented towards slavery when that quickly, once the Constitution allowed Congress to act, act it did. And it's a good thing to note. It's a good thing to remember. But perhaps the biggest bone of contention in the Constitution, and you'll even see textbooks talking about it, is that the Constitution declares black people three-fifths of a person. I challenge anybody to actually look at the Constitution, read the entire Constitution, and find me the clause that says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, as a Constitution we declare black people three-fifths of a person. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that. It's the three-fifths compromise. Okay? And it declares slaves to be three-fifths of a person. But someone would say it declares black people to be three-fifths of a person. Well, first of all, first of all, declaring anybody to be three-fifths of a person is a philosophical declaration, okay? If anything, of our founding documents, the document that is more philosophical is the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with unalienable rights of which are life, liberty, and the state of uh, pursuit of happiness. That speaks of philosophy from which... Our nation is declaring independence. But the Constitution is not a philosophical document. It is a legal document. So it's not going to make a philosophical declaration that slaves or people of any race are only worth three-fifths of a person. But rather, it is a legal document. And the place in which you find this clause, if you ever bother to read it and find it, is in the article of the Constitution dealing with representation in the House of Representatives. Now remember, our government in the Congress has two houses, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Hopefully we know this. The Senate, every state, no matter the population, has two senators. We now have 50 states, there are 100 senators. Not quite that many in the early uh, years of our, of our nation. But the House of Representatives, the number of representatives of a state is determined by population. The higher the population, the greater the representation. So where do you think people would want to count slaves in full? To up the count of population to increase the representation in Congress and the power of that state. It's the slave states who wanted to count slaves in full. And that would have increased their power. But the free states objected, not because they believed slaves or people of a certain race were only three-fifths, worth three-fifths of a person, but because counting slaves in full would increase the representation and therefore the political clout of the southern slave states in Congress. Now, both sides couldn't be so stubborn that the other side would walk out. We had to put this country together. We had to get it grounded. So it led to compromise. The Three-Fifths Compromise. And the Three-Fifths Compromise can be found in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution. Here's what it states. In full, 
Quote, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to the representative numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons. It's a mouthful, but where did you hear the word slave in that compromise? Nowhere. Where did you hear the word African or black person or non-white person in that compromise? Nowhere. Now let me break it down by taking out certain excess phraseology. Let me read it again first. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons including those bound to service of a term, for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons. Now I'm going to take some of the excess out of that and, uh, and, and break it down. So what it's basically saying is representatives shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons three-fifths of all other persons. Representatives are determined by numbers. How do you get to the number of a state? By adding to the whole number of free persons, three-fifths of all other persons. So it's free persons plus three-fifths of all other persons. So what we see in this compromise that they say makes a declaration that, that black people are only worth three-fifths of a person, that's not what we see. It's the numbers of the population to determine representation in the House of Representatives. And there are only two groups of people determining the numbers. Now they say including those bound by a term of service and not including, uh, let me look at the phrase again, uh, excluding Indians that are not taxed. If the Indians are taxed, of course it would include them. So it includes people bound by a term of service and does not include untaxed Native Americans. But there are only two groups of people we see, free persons, and all other persons. And both groups are called persons. Free, the whole number of free persons plus three-fifths of all other persons. So what does that dynamic do? Free persons plus three-fifths of all other persons. Well, if we want to count the all other persons, who, by the way, if they're not the free persons, all other persons are not free people. They're people who are not free. So, of course, it's implied. These are the slaves. But if we're going to include them in, as a whole in the population, then we have to move them from the all other persons category to the free persons category. So all these people, including textbooks that say the Constitution declares black people three-fifths of a person, are completely missing the point in this. Because the conundrum, I guess you could say, the conflict we see now here is how do you count the people for the purposes of representation in the House of Representatives? You do it by population, and you add, the population is the sum total of all free persons plus three-fifths of all other persons. Well, I want to count the slaves as, as whole people. I want to count everyone as whole people. So how do we do that? We take the people from the all other persons category and move them over to the free persons category. And when they are free persons then you can count them in full. How is that racist? How is that pro-slavery? 
to count all other persons as full persons, liberty and freedom had to be granted to them. And this is in the Constitution. This is long before 1808, when the Congress could act to abolish the slave trade. So you can basically say that the Three-Fifths Compromise gave the slave states the incentive to, on their own, emancipate the slaves so that they can count that population in full. Unfortunately, the southern states did not do that. And once the slave trade was abolished, that's when you saw the tensions start to rise and mount between North and South in this country that eventually led to civil war and the Emancipation Proclamation, which we celebrate today. But when we look at the Constitution, what it actually says, first of all, the only time it ever mentions slavery by name is in the 13th Amendment when it completely prohibits it, except in cases of conviction and punishment for crime. But we can say when you look at what the Constitution actually says and what it is moving the population toward, and especially with regard to the government's involvement in people's lives, this nation was not founded on slavery. It was founded on liberty and equality that was moving the nation toward the abolition of slavery. And it all comes to a head with the 13th Amendment in which it declares neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Passed the Senate on April 8, 1864. Passed the House of Representatives January 31, 1865. Signed unnecessarily because amendments passed by the Congress do not get signed by the president. They go straight to the states for ratification, but President Abraham Lincoln signed it on February 1st, 1865, and it was ratified by the states formally by December 6th, 1865. But today, as a nation, while we recognize, hopefully in this podcast, the process in which our society came to seeing slavery as something morally repugnant, let's also recognize that it was Judeo-Christianity that first began to move us in the direction of emancipation and the respect for slaves, even to the point of giving them a day of rest. It was Christian Europe that little by little did away with slavery, even informally, because Christians could not enslave other Christians. It was after the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, when we were more scientific, that we see the rise of slavery again in Europe. But it was always controversial. And it wasn't controversial anywhere else in the world except in the Christian West. And just as we see plenty of Christians who do not live by their Christian faith, from the high levels of government to just the regular citizen, people who claim to be Christian, but nothing they do manifests their Christianity. We saw that in Western society as well. When people turned away from the Catholic faith, Protestantism was on the rise, enlightenment and being more scientific in our outlook was also on the rise. We saw a return of slavery in Europe, but it was always controversial. It was never fully accepted We see society, especially the Western society, at a crossroads with the founding of this country and the Constitution. Getting the raw deal that it's getting and how it's being taught nowadays was actually 
a document that was moving the people towards emancipation of the slaves because we were not founded on slavery, but we were founded on liberty and freedom. And even if it does allow for the fugitive slave clause, the compromise was the abolition of the slave trade, which Congress wasted no time in passing once they were allowed to constitutionally, and of course, in the limiting of the power of the southern states to count their slaves, unless they gave the people liberty, moving them from the all-other-persons category, which were only counted three-fifths, to the free-persons category, which were counted in full. wasn't white or black. It was all-other-persons and free-persons. And we see that movement toward emancipation to the point where we are now. We cannot imagine slavery having ever existed anywhere. That's how far we've come. And on this day, we remember just a few steps prior to the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, Abraham Lincoln, on this day, declaring by his authority as a wartime president that in the states under rebellion of the United States shall be henceforward and forever free. And so we remember that anniversary. But let us also remember the history and how Judeo-Christian values and faith moved Western society away from slavery. Whenever we moved away from Judeo-Christian faith, we saw slavery on the rise again, but always controversial because of the Judeo-Christian roots of Western society. Until finally a nation founded on liberty had ingrained systemically in its constitution such provisions that would inevitably move that nation to abolition of slavery and ultimately to a society that can never comprehend slavery ever existing. So I wish when people would remind everyone and love to remind everyone that this nation once had slavery would also remind us of the history of where we've gone, where we've been, and how far we've come. We are a free country founded on freedom and liberty. Because we are a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And that is a history in which we can truly be proud of, because that is the contribution that faith in Christ and faith in the Judeo-Christian God has brought society. And yes, we were a nation that once had it, but it's been a long time in which we have been without it. And we paid a high price in the Civil War in the leadership of such presidents as Abraham Lincoln, who built upon the founding principles of our fathers in the Constitution, who in turn built upon the roots established by the Judeo-Christian faith that helped build Western Europe and the modern world. So those are my thoughts on this anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. I hope they make sense. hope I didn't bore you. But I hope I gave you some food for thought on this topic that still continues to haunt us in this nation, even down to today. But it's also one in which, when we know the history, we can certainly stand confident that, yes, we are a nation and a faith and a principle of liberty and freedom that ultimately led to the abolition of slavery and the moral grounding in which we know, as a society, we pray 
we will never have that institution again. So thank you for listening. And with any luck, I will talk to you again soon.